You're listening to Hardwired with Jeff Wickwire. Here's what's coming up in today's edition. God wants to be glorified through what he's done in you. So don't keep it quiet. Tell somebody. Don't worry about what they think. Bring somebody this weekend to church. Just go knock on their door. Hey, you want to come to church with me this Sunday? This Saturday night? Whichever? Oh, well, I haven't been to church in 30 years. Well, now's your time. Come with me. Bring them. People are dying out there. Have you ever done something you wished you hadn't done and wasted valuable time because of it? We all make mistakes, and in those mistakes, we lose time that we will never get back. Today, Pastor Jeff wants you to know that surrendering yourself to God will give you the most productive and impactful life that you could possibly have. When you let Him take control, you begin a life that's prosperous, and not a second goes to waste. Stop ignoring the massive potential for your life and let God take control. Well, let's join Pastor Jeff in the book of Galatians chapter 2 as he continues his message, Paul's Powerful Testimony. Now, he again reminds them of who and what he had been. He's telling the Galatians this now. He says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to absolutely destroy it. I wanted to ruin the church. Not only had he been a persecutor, but he has also excelled in the very Judaism that had originally turned him against Christianity. This Saul who became Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, was a naturally brilliant man, brilliant mind. When they took off his head and martyred him, in my humble opinion, they killed the finest man on earth, the brightest man on earth, the most spiritual man on earth, the wisest man on earth at that time. He says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. I made straight A's. Nobody made the grades I made. Being more exceedingly zealous for the, the uh, traditions of my fathers. Paul had been given a brilliant mind. He was an expert in the law of Moses. He was a trained rabbi who was determined to make a name for himself. Paul knew the Torah like the back of his hand. He was a Pharisee committed to keeping all the minutia of the law. This included, just to get started, 613 commandments of the written laws. He knew them like the back of his hand. Yet on the Damascus Road, all of his learning came crashing down, shattered by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow, 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 wow. And imagine having to deal with all this and be blind at the same time being led by the hand with all these thoughts and emotions surging in your head. Can you imagine that? What it must have been like? Oh, no, I've been wrong. All those people I persecuted, I was wrong. How was I taught wrong? I was taught by Gamaliel. How could I have been wrong? How could I have missed it? How could I have missed Jesus? What have I done? Next, Paul further gives the Galatians a thumbnail sketch of his spiritual history. Here we go. Verses 15 through 17. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I didn't go see Peter. I didn't go see James. I didn't go see any of them. I went to Arabia 
and return again to Damascus. Now notice the power of his statement that he was separated from his mother's womb. I want you to think about that for a minute. Can you let your mind kind of go for a moment and consider this, that when you were in your mother's womb, God knew you'd be sitting here tonight and he knew you'd be redeemed and he knew the call he had on your life. He knew the attacks the enemy will have made on your life. And he knew the hour, the moment, the second you would be saved. He knew what you were going to look like, what you were going to think like, what your strengths and your weaknesses would be, your chromosomal and genetic makeup. He knew all of that. Tall, short, brown hair, blonde, blue eyes, brown. What your voice was going to sound like, the mistakes you were going to make. God's hand was on the life of Paul because God is God. He was on the life of Paul from his mother's womb. Jeremiah said the same thing. Yet at no time did God overrule Paul's will as a moral human being. And I want us to understand this. God persuades, but he doesn't push. He convicts, but he does not coerce. He does not arbitrarily impose his will on the human will. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, Pastor Jeff, if he doesn't do any of those things, then how does he plan something for me when I'm still in my mother's womb? Because he knows the end from the beginning. He knows who's going to come to him and who is not. I love this illustration. Picture a door right here. And on the the side you're looking at, here's the door, and you're looking at this side. It says, whosoever will, let him come. And it's the offer that every person has to receive Christ and be saved. Whosoever will, let him come. Well, I'm a whosoever. Are you a whosoever? Yes, you are. Then... You say, wow, that sounds good to me, and I know that I need him, and I know that I'm in sin, so Lord, forgive me. And you, you walk through the door, and you shut it on the other side, and you turn around, and on this side it says, I knew you were coming all the time. I knew you were coming. He doesn't turn to Jesus and say, can you believe that? I didn't, I didn't know they were coming. No, God is never surprised with anything. He lives in the eternal moment. There is no time with God. So he saw you coming before you were either ever born. So his hand was on Saul, knowing Saul would be coming to him. Now, at the same time, he never loses control of human affairs. His omnipotence, his omnipresence, and his omniscience enable him to gather events into his hands with the greatest ease. Do you believe that God's in charge of our world? You say, some of you are thinking, well, you know, it doesn't look that way to me. It looks like the devil's in charge and wicked people are in charge. Imagine a huge cruise ship. And we're all on the cruise ship. As a matter of fact, the whole world's on the cruise ship and it's got a destination. There's a captain of that ship and he's got his hand on the steering wheel and he directs the rudder underneath. And he's the captain that's got the charts, the maps, and he knows exactly where he's going and exactly where that ship is destined to go to. But while they're going there, on the way, all kinds of things happen on that ship that he does not like or agree with and that do not fall under his will. Ship rules are broken. People are wronged. Bad things happen. Yet nevertheless, the captain always remains in charge and is inexorably taking the ship to its destination. This world is like that ship. And the captain is in charge. 
And you say, well, where is it going? Read Revelations. Revelations tells us exactly where it's going, and the, and the captain's got his hand on the wheel. Are things happening on the ship that he doesn't like, that break his heart, that grieve him, that he wish weren't happening, that he can't stop because people have their own will? And yet, when they arrive at the destination, every single person who has done anything wrong on that ship is going to answer for it. But nothing stops the captain from getting the ship there. It's the love boat. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's going to get there. Do you believe that? And, and, and uh, God's in charge. And that's what we talk about when we say providence, that history is his story. It may not look like it, but he is inexorably steering and guiding the ship of this world into his will and into the destination of the new kingdom of God, new heavens and a new earth, where the old heavens and the old earth will pass away and all has become new. That's what we mean when we say omnipotence, all-powerful, omnipresence, everywhere at once, omniscience, all-knowing. Through his omniscience, he simply knows ahead of time who's going to be saved and who won't, who will respond to his grace and who will reject it. So God could speak of the infant Saul lying in his cradle in Tarsus as being separated, and I believe he did you too if you're saved. Boy, can I hear the wheels turning. This is heavy stuff for a Wednesday night, Pastor Jeff. I was in the office all day. Listen, we got to get this. We serve a mighty God. He's not some figment of our imagination. He's not Greek mythology. He's not Brothers Grimm. This is a real God who's really in charge, who really is the God of providence. And he really is bringing history to a grand climax. While he was in the very act of breathing out threatening and slaughter, Paul was arrested by the risen Christ himself on the Damascus road through grace. What Paul deserved was wrath and us too. What he received was grace. So did we. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. None of us deserve grace, but we got it. We deserve wrath. Jesus didn't deserve wrath, but that's what he got so that we could receive grace. We have all received God's grace, a grace we didn't deserve. Now, following his powerful conversion, Paul tells us, I didn't immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. While initially remaining in Damascus, the Bible says, he increased the more in strength, growing rapidly in his newfound faith, and, quote, confounded the Jews, which dwelt at Damascus, proving that Jesus is very Christ. Now, after this, Paul went into Arabia. And in Arabia, he sought to enjoy the silence and plunged himself into meditation, Bible study, and prayer. He had a whole lot of reprocessing to do. So he said, I'm not going to go talk to people. I'm going to shut myself in with God. And I'm going to let him talk to me. He desperately needed time alone with God, with his Bible, with the Holy Spirit, and with the memory that he had seen of Jesus in his glory. Oh, gosh, this touches me. I want you to know, folks, there's times you got to get away, shut the world out, open up your Bible, 
Get on your knees. Shut the People magazine. Turn off the idiot box, that idol that sits in the middle of everybody's living room around which all the furniture faces. (laughs) And we need to listen to God talk to us through his word. No doubt Paul poured through the Torah, the Psalms, the prophets. He reconstructed the promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament, such as he discovered he was to be born in Bethlehem. Gee, I heard Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was to labor in Galilee, as Jesus did. He was to minister to the poor and to the oppressed. He read in Isaiah and other places. He was to do always those things that please the Father. He was to be crucified according to Psalms 22. Wow, Christ was crucified. I remember hearing tell of it. He was to be buried for three days and nights. He was to rise again from the dead and ascend on high. Connecting the dots one after another, Paul realized it was all there. Jesus fit the bill perfectly for three years. Think about three years. Three years. He remained in solitude piecing together his newfound theology, preparing to take his case to the entire known world. And what a master he was going to be at bringing Christ to people. Next, he tells us of his first meeting with Simon Peter. I would give money to watch that meeting. Verses 18 to 20 say, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. After three years of alone with God, shut in with him, he went to meet Peter. And he remained with him for 15 days. Don't you know that was a 15 days to remember? But I saw none of the other apostles except James, he writes, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, he says to the Galatians, I am not lying. I am not lying to you. This is the way it all came down. What a meeting that must have been. The apostle to the Jews, Peter, meeting the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, think about that. There they stood, looking each other in the eye. Peter, the simple Galilean fisherman, and Paul, the one-time rabbinic scholar. Outside of Christ, these dudes had nothing in common. They would never have hooked up and gone for a walk. The only thing they had in common was they met the man from Galilee, Jesus Christ. And that was enough. We can only imagine the hundreds of questions Paul asked Peter. He didn't need theology. God had taught him. But he did need the gaps filled in of his knowledge of Christ because Peter had walked with him for three and a half years in person, and Paul had not. So don't you know, he was loaded with questions pouring out of his brilliant mind. Peter, the eyewitness of the Lord's work and majesty, told Paul all about the miraculous healings, Jesus walking on the water. Can you imagine Paul sitting down and saying, Peter saying, Paul, there was a time we were in the boat and it was night. And all of a sudden in the distance, we see somebody walking towards us, walking right on top of the water. Now Saul, now Paul going, you have just got to be kidding me. No. And as he got closer, we thought it was a phantom, a ghost, a phantasma. The Greek said phantasm. But, but as he got closer, he said, don't be afraid. It is I. And it was Jesus. He walked on the water, Paul. Oh, Paul was soaking this up like a hungry sponge, don't you know? And what about the time Peter watched Jesus raise the dead? The widow's son, Lazarus, the people he had brought up from D 
deep death. And Saul, Paul, heard all about this for the first time. He, Peter described his teaching the multitudes, speaking like no man ever spoke, how he cast out devils. Don't you know Peter went into great detail about the Gadarene demoniac and how that, that legion of devils came out of him and he was in his right mind. And Paul sat there and just soaked it up and asked more questions and couldn't believe the glory and the beauty of what he was hearing. Peter likely took Paul to the room where the, Lord's, uh, first, uh, where the first Lord's Supper had taken place. Here, Paul is where he broke the bread and gave it to us. And this is where he handed some to Judas and Judas went out. It happened right here, Saul. Then to the upper room where the spirit had first fallen on the newborn church. Paul, we were right up here, 120 of us praying and wham, the power of God fell. And everybody had tongues of fire over their head. From there to Gethsemane, where Jesus had prayed before his arrest. And he said, Paul, here, he sweated drops of blood. He had such consternation about the cross. Did he take Paul to the courtyard where warming himself by a fire, he had denied the Lord? Don't know. All these places and events filled Paul's spirit with holy fire. How had he missed it? How had he been so oblivious to these miraculous events happening all around him? He had been shut in to his own little bubble, insulated from the miraculous Christ doing what he did. No doubt Peter took Paul to the tomb where he spoke of peering in with John on that first Easter morn only to find it empty. And finally, Paul was escorted to the Mount of Olives where Jesus had ascended again into heaven saying, I shall return. I can just picture Peter and Paul. He went right up there. Really? And he said, I shall return. We're told that Paul also met with James, the Lord's half-brother. And I can only imagine his curious mind pummeling James with all kinds of questions. Tell me, James, what was Jesus like at home? Did you ever get into an argument with him? Did he ever sass Mary? Was he really that perfect? He never got a whooping, ever? Never. It made us all sick. He was never in trouble. It just got to you after a while. The guy was just perfect. Tell me about the carpenter's shop where Jesus worked. All things, kinds of things like this. We can only imagine. The first chapter closes out with the mention of how amazed the Jewish believers were at the conversion of their former tormentor. Verses 21 and 24 say, Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing about me only. And what did they hear? That he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And look what it says they did. Can you read the last part with me? And they glorified God in me. You know what God's will is for your life and mine? That people looking at what he's done in us will glorify God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. So what is God's call for you and me that others will look and, and see what God's done in us and through us and glorify our father who is in heaven.
because we've got a testimony. Say, I've got a testimony. You do. You've got a testimony. Once you were lost, now you're found. Once you were blind, but now you see. Once you were dead, now you're alive. Once you were hellbound, now you're heaven bound. You've got a testimony. Let people glorify God because of what he's done in you. Now, the believers had all heard of the dreaded Saul, the persecutor. His very name has sent chills down the spines of the early Christians. He dragged them in the jail, tore their families apart, scourged them with whips, killed them in the name of Judaism. But now this very same man was one of them. How badly does our world need a testimony like this right now? Think about it. How, how badly? How many churches are just stone dead cold? You go visit them, you can ice skate to the seat. No one's going to say hello to you or greet you. I talked to a man, this is really true, I talked to a man just a few weeks ago who told me that he just got an idea one Sunday morning. He decided he was going to visit like five churches in one Sunday. So he found the churches that had early service, later services, and evening services, and he went to five churches in one Sunday. And he said, do you know that not one of them, I went into five churches and not in one of them was I greeted. Now, he was not a crier. As a matter of fact, he was a very successful guy. He said, I just want to see what was out there. Not one person greeted me. He said, I even hung around at the coffee bar thinking, well, if I get a coffee and stand here looking needy, somebody's going to come up and say hello. In five churches, nobody greeted him. He sat in the chair and went through the service and got up and left. A stranger walked in and a stranger walked out and everybody he left were strangers inside. And I thought, we're supposed to welcome one another as, and receive one another as Jesus has welcomed and received us. It didn't happen. How badly is a church that is alive and well and loving and vibrant and full of the Holy Spirit and full of light and full of life needed in our culture right now? I'm telling you, if you could see what comes to me by radio, we get emails and we get letters and people say, I have never heard that message. And it was a message that 30 years ago you would have heard all the time. But it has become rare now. Because everything has become, God wants you successful and rich and wants you to get the best parking spot at the mall. And what we have been looking at is never taught or preached in a lot of churches. What a shame. What a shame. So what happened to Paul? Man, it rocked the church world and God was glorified in him. God wants to be glorified through what he's done in you. So don't keep it quiet. Tell somebody. Don't worry about what they think. Bring somebody this weekend to church. Just go knock on their door. Hey, you want to come to church with me this Sunday? This Saturday night? Whichever? Oh, well, I haven't been to church in 30 years. Well, now's your time. Come with me. Bring them. People are dying out there. Well, their arch enemy was now preaching the gospel. A notable miracle had taken place in Saul. The wolf had become a sheep. The persecutor had become a preacher. And they glorified God in me, says Paul. Now, God is always glorified when a sinner repents and is saved. 
becoming a new creation in Christ. May God be glorified in our lives as we submit to the ever-transforming power of God. We've all had moments of looking down on someone. There are times in our life where it's easy to justify it and we ignore the hurt that it comes along with. Today, we learn from Pastor Jeff that as Christians, we need to look upon the people around us with love. Everyone in this world is suffering in some way, and we need to swallow our pride and talk to people we look down upon to live how Jesus wants us to live. Don't let bitterness consume you. For more teachings and information about this ministry, we encourage you to check out hardwired.org. Pastor Jeff Wickwire has many more messages there. You'll find them under the audio tab. This will surely help you be encouraged in the Word. Once again, that's hardwired.org. We want to invite you to come back again next time for another teaching from Pastor Jeff. Here's more on that. As Christians, do we really trust in God's promises? In our Bible reading, prayer life, and church relationships, we are constantly confronted with promises. But do we ever dismiss them? In the next message, Pastor Jeff wants you to know that God's promises will forever remain true. When you start living a life centered around the promises that He has in store for you, everything changes for the better. Stop holding yourself back and let God guide you to His eternal kingdom. Thanks for taking time to be with us today as we studied God's Word. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Jeff, visit hardwired.org. On behalf of Pastor Jeff and the entire production team, We invite you to join us again right here on Hardwired.